Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where we bring on people that we think are very interesting and are where we want to be in the future. Uh, Lewis, who do we have on today? Hey Kyle, in this episode we bring on my cousin, Curtis Shulman. It's a funny story actually about how Curtis and I met. Actually, it's not. We're just we're just cousins. Anyway, Curtis is an awesome guy. He's kind of like my older brother. He lived with me and my parents for about five or six years when I was in middle and early high school. He's had a very interesting career progression. He moved from Pennsylvania to be a casino host in Las Vegas for a couple years until he moved back to run uh, his family business, which is a string of restaurants and hotels that are all in the same building. And he walks us through his story of how he did those different jobs and the things he learned along the way and the lessons he has for younger people following similar entrepreneurial and ambitious paths. We also get a little bit into fitness. Uh, Curtis is a former bodybuilder, some extremely impressive PRs, and now his foray into jujitsu and being a father. So with that, I'll cut to the interview. Okay, Curtis, uh, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Cool, thank you for coming on. So the first question, uh, and we'll get into this kind of later because you're running restaurants and bars and things like that now. Uh, did you work in family businesses as a kid? I know your dad had the pizza restaurant. Yeah, I, I grew up in the industry. I started, uh, my, my first title was officially bus pan man or bus pan boy. I started doing that when I was 14 and uh, not as glamorous as it sounds, but that's kind of my introduction to the business. And I said my whole life I was never going to get back into it once I graduated college. And here I am living it. So it has a way of sucking you in when you get in hospitality. What sort of different jobs do you have in high school? Because I'm assuming you didn't just stay washing dishes for those four years. Pretty much everything I did was in the hospitality sector, and it was all at the G-Man at the time. So it mm-hmm. ranged from doing dishes, prepping food. I was a delivery driver. Um, I waited tables. I, did, I mean, I did a little bit of everything. So it kind of... And you didn't like it at the time? or No, it's just... It's, or it's, it's neutral uh, to it. Or you wanted to do very, something different. It's a taxing business in the sense mm-hmm. that it's your existence revolves around other people's playtime, so you don't really have time off. So holidays, weekends, those times when you want to socialize, you don't get that. And when you're young, that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, man, I can't do this my whole life. I want weekends off. I want to be able to hang out with friends and do those things. Okay. Uh, w- once I got through that sector, I was in. I was washing cars for a little while. The and, car wash, uh, or is that? Yeah, yeah. That, that's in state college too. Mm-hmm. That was actually a really, a really fun job. Super easy. You have three guys in a car and you just basically uh, put a little extra elbow grease into each car and then uh, listen to music. So easy way to pass time when you're in college. Okay. Uh, so that was when you are in college and you went to yeah. York. Where is York in Pennsylvania? York is right outside of Harrisburg, about 30 minutes outside of Harrisburg. It's okay. kind of like if you were to Google the armpit of Pennsylvania, that's where you're going to find it. Uh, okay. Not a, yeah. The left kind armpit, of a dumb, right armpit. <laughs> it's just a just an absolute dumpster fire. Oh no! <laughs> Why didn't you go to Penn State? I was well. There wasn't a big market for uh, six foot two white power forwards at the time, so I had to go to uh, a smaller school. Okay, so you I, I played college. Basketball. Yeah, for a few years, but it was also I grew up here, so I needed to get out of town and uh, mm-hmm. you know kind of lay some roots outside of family and explore myself a little bit. Okay, and what did you do at York? I know you did business, but. Is that just a general business admin or? The first week and a half, I was actually sports management. And then after about, it was about seven or eight classes in, I realized it was, I was never going to make any money doing this. So mm-hmm. I changed over to business admin um, with a, a focus in marketing. And I graduated uh, in four years. Okay. And then I know 
uh, I don't know if you did anything before or like other internships, but the first time uh, you came out to Vegas was for an internship after I'm a, what your junior year because you're 21. Yep. So yep, I, can you tell us about that? So why did you? Was that just an idea you had with my dad, or you said I want to do something in Vegas, or you just said I'm looking for anything? How did that come about? I've, I was looking for an internship and had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, mm -hmm. Didn't know what sector I wanted to be in. Didn't know exactly what I wanted to do to utilize my degree. Loved coming out to Vegas to visit your family, and you know, I was talking to my dad and your dad, and kind of collaborated on the thought of doing an internship out there and seeing if I liked it. So uh, that kind of grew, grew organically from just some low-level conversations and the fact I had to have an internship to graduate. Okay, so it wasn't part of some uh, grander plot. No, no. no. I, I, before I went out to Vegas, I wasn't one hundred percent sure that's where I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. um, once I did the internship and came back to graduate, I knew for a fact that's where I wanted to live. Okay, so you were at the Luxor, and what did you do? To be honest with you, it wasn't the most uh, organized internship I've been in. We had like uh, weekly seminars every day, at once every week with the executives throughout the company from Jim Muren on down. Mm -hmm. So there'd be a little circuit we do weekly and we'd visit a new property and they'd show us kind of a, a really highlighted feature of that property. And throughout the internship, I was very much just bounced around the different departments. Slot operations was probably the, the primary focus. Um, I would basically analyze the whole slot floor, which really means I went around and recorded the date, age, and use of each machine, which I think mm -hmm. was about 2,000 machines, and put it on an Excel database because they didn't have one. So it wasn't really that glorious, and that was kind of an ability just for them to start really digesting where to put capital in the slot department and how they can kind of boost uh, coin, in and coin in and everything. Mm -hmm. Where did you learn the most for what you're doing now? Was it when you were young working in the, the kitchen as a busboy and doing all that stuff? Or was it uh, later on through the internship or basketball? Or I would actually say that I learned the most probably over the last five or six years. You know, there's That's really about how long you've been in, like, so basically on the job? Yeah, and I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because, you know, there's tons of experiences that got me to that point. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if I go back and look at the experiences I had and the things I did, like Vegas was fantastic. Um, the first few years I was in some management capacity, but after mm -hmm. that I was really just in charge of myself. So it was a, a fantastic uh, job financially, but in mm -hmm. terms of managing people, I still had, I was pretty unpolished. Mm -hmm. um, so when I came back here, you know, I learned how to balance books and learn how to read some, some basic financial statements. But when you're analyzing it, in a company that has billions of dollars in depth versus a company that has to literally try to mark every penny that goes out the door. Um, you really don't know as much as you think you do until you really get in the soup and nuts of it. So. Okay. And we'll get more into that a little bit, but I think there's more to be said about Vegas before we just leave that behind. Cause you're there a while and you jumped to a lot of places. So you did the internship at the Luxor, finished up school. Uh, then you started at MGM. How did that happen? And what did you start out doing there? I actually started at uh, Bellagio. Oh, you started so, at Bellagio, then MGM. Okay. Yeah, so once I graduated college, it was there was a time period that we were waiting for ARIA to be finished. That was when the big city center project was going on. And I had about a three-month window until my job position would open. So in that interim, I actually got back into hospitality. I was an assistant manager at a Hooters restaurant in State College. Mm -hmm. um, I think I remember three. visiting you I will, yeah. at that Hooters at some point. Yeah. Exactly. It was a bit bad. <laughs> I was maybe maybe ten, eleven, but I remember that. <laughs> Very much just a placeholder job as a way to get income. I had a friend that owned the uh, 
the restaurant and he helped me out. Um, once city center opened, it kind of created a vacuum around MGM resorts cause there was a need to hire. So once the people transferred to Aria, there was vacancies throughout MGM. And I had an opportunity to start a Bellagio in the call center of casino marketing. So, uh, I started that in about, I think it was August or November sometime in that range. Mm-hmm. And, uh, essentially I was just taking phone calls from customers that weren't at a level that needed to get hosted yet. So I'd take calls, book their reservations, let them know they qualify for very black and white. Um, not a lot of autonomy. Mm-hmm. It was very systematic and here's what they have. Here's what you can offer them here. Are the dates you can book it. Boom. Uh, that passed for a few months. It was kind of, it, it wasn't really exciting, but it was a good way to integrate yourself into the industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. I went into host services which is the same sector of casino marketing, where essentially I was just a glorified secretary. I would book and process all the reservations for the hosts that weren't at the level that they had their own assistant, but they didn't have the time to put it everything in, in themselves. So still very much just a transposing information, not a lot of um, complex thinking. I think if the timelines are about a year, year in, there is an opening for a supervisor job there, and I had no desire to do it. Uh, this is still at Bellagio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was at Bellagio for almost two years and I just did not want to be a supervisor. I had no interest and I want to be a host. And that was, I was just hell bent on, I want to be a host. I want to wait until my opportunity rises and go there. And the director of the department essentially told me I was a jackass, if I don't take the job because this is the next step for me to get where I want to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I got in the supervisor, the supervising side and basically it's still within casino awesome. marketing. Same department. I was just overseeing it on the that first layer of management level. Um, basically monitoring call times, taking problem calls, ensuring that there's not calls in the queue, making sure that people are taking breaks when they should take breaks and that we have enough people on the headsets. Um, really monotonous stuff. Mm-hmm. Not, again, extremely... Uh, nothing that made me think really critically. It was very systematic. Mm-hmm. I, I began towards the end of it to work a little bit more at the hotel and start reading play and placing customers based on where they qualify for bumping guests on that lower tier level. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it was just a stepping stone to where I wanted to be. My boss at the time got sick and she had to take a six month leave of absence. And in her absence, I was the fill in manager of the department. And that is where I think I, I started learning the most on the management side and in terms of how the department actually runs, why it runs the way it does mm-hmm. um, thinking outside the box, um, really applying myself and some of the, the experiences and stories I um, heard and learned along the way. Did that for about six months. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I was at the MGM one day. I was grabbing coffee with a colleague of your your father's, and I got mm-hmm. an opportunity to take my next jump in the same company. So just so. from kind of a uh, casual encounter kind of played out? Yeah, it was basically just a way to expand my quote unquote friendship circle outside mm-hmm. of the Bellagio. Okay. Didn't know what was going to come of it. I was really just grabbing a coffee and uh, a way to kind of extend my roots through the conversation. It was, you know, it went well, um, had a few more film conversations after that and an opportunity was given to me to become a host, which is what I really wanted to do. And uh, it was an exciting time. It was with the same company. So I got to stay within the same organization and kind of start really growing personally. The, the first job as a host is where I got the most uh, personal improvement. Can you explain the role of a host for the people that don't know? 
Yeah, absolutely. So a casino host, there, there's everything from just a, a cash host all the way up to a senior vice president of player development. The, the same basic core function is you're bringing in premium, high-level ga gaming customers, people that are going to spend money on the table, and you're going to give them a reason to come stay at your establishment versus another. It's a high-end marketing role. It's basically being a liaison between the casino and then all the other amenities that you have to offer under that company's umbrella to ensure that you're getting all the gaming revenue you can from you know, the well-off so customers. Leveraging the relationships that you build through being a host is it, like the most important piece of it. I, I would argue that's the most important piece. At, at the longer you do it, you realize that a lot of the relationships are leveraged on the front lines through the people that from the VP of you know the hotel that's booking rooms with them to the the table games dealers to the people at the restaurants they like. So there's really, they get touched by a lot of places and I, we can touch on mm -hmm. that more when we talk about when I move is you have deep relationships with these people, but their experience when they're at property extends way beyond that. So this relationship to just move them wherever you want, um, it's not quite the same level of engagement you expected it to be. Interesting. So I guess we can get into the move then uh, from Bellagio to MGM. Uh, it's a different property. It's humongous. Uh, how do you kind of start out as a host and get your first business? Do you have relationships from the call center or you were, your face was never really involved? Uh, no. So I, you kind of start from zero a little bit. Start, start from zero. I mean, especially when you're with the same company, the last thing you want to do is take customers staying at Bellagio and then mm -hmm. have them come to, stay at MGM. I mean, you're really just robbing, robbing Peter to pay Paul. It's cannibalism. It doesn't make sense. So essentially you don't have high expectations when you start out at entry level host. They expect you to learn the industry, meet people in the pits, take on new customers, customers that have the means, but haven't developed yet. Mm -hmm. And that was my role. And it really is just meeting people. If I could give out business cards faster than I could get them printed, then I was doing my job. Mm -hmm. That's really what it was. It was very organic grassroots sales, so to speak. I would walk the pits every day. Um, Can you go what, explain what the pits are? So the pits are basically, I was table games focused host. So mm -hmm. all the, from blackjack to roulette to baccarat, um, dice, it's the area where the, the terminology of where the customers are playing in each okay. kind of geographic location of the, of the casino. So. so you're walking around sharp dressed, handing out business yeah. cards. Yeah. Thinking I was cooler than I was. Absolutely. Uh, just approaching tables and really pushing myself outside my comfort zone. I have always been social, but I've been social when I want to be in my circle. I wasn't outgoing to new people. I wasn't great at creating conversation or small talk. And to develop, you really have to get outside your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. um, if you're a good host, every single person on property will know you. I mean, you have over 10,000 people on property. That's a lot of people. Absolutely. Introduce to myself to, to, from limos to every restaurant to every different front desk department from the general front desk to the VIP to the mansions to the skylofts. I mean, you really need to push yourself and make sure that people know who you are because there's going to be times you need favors and you need to accommodate your customers. And that's where you really start to strengthen those relationships. So I was tracking about 10 miles a day in dress shoes, which isn't comfortable, not incredible support. Mm -hmm. And then still going to the gym for however long after. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Back in my young meathead days. <laughs> uh, so how long would you say it took you to get comfortable and start seeing uh, yourself book some of your own business? 
it was a slow start. I mean, it started with people that really there wasn't even a ton of value. They could have basically called the call center, but it was just kind of laying your roots. And I'd say probably in about three months, I started booking some business, but nothing big. Throughout six months, you start booking some business that, you know, your boss will tell you you did a good job here and there. Um, about a year ends when I really started getting some serious traction and return customers and repeat customers and referrals and all the business business that actually adds value to you as a host because this is revenue I'm responsible for bringing in. Mm -hmm. um, so about a year it took me and I wouldn't say those are lifelong relationships. It was a year to establish myself as I can do this. Here's my potential and it's just the beginning. Okay. And are you getting, are you getting compensated based on, um, like the number of people that you bring in and the amount of money that they gamble? Like, how does that, how does that work? Primarily? I mean, where's the incentive come from? The, the, the incentive is based on your contracts. Every, for the most part, every host is under a contract and your contract is negotiated based on a lot of different things, but primarily um, your revenues that you're bringing in. Mm -hmm. like okay. What revenue are you bringing into the um, property? Some hotels look at it different. It's a little more income based. Um, you know, there, there's several ways to look at casino customers. You have your theoretical, mm -hmm. which is your statistical analytic data that if you play this machine or you play this table for this long with this much money in, they should theoretically yield a loss of X. Mm -hmm. A lot of people analyze it that way, or there's actually just raw bottom line, how much money came to the company because of your customers throughout the year. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different ways to cut that pie. Um, but for the most part, it is strictly revenue based. They do take into consideration if you're a team player, if you're a quote unquote service host. So, you know, if someone like Lewis's dad, who's pretty high up there, had a huge customer that's in if he's not there at midnight and I am, he needs to know that there's a member of his team that can take care of this customer mm -hmm. and make sure that he services them accordingly. And if he needs something that's taken care of. So there's that trust and partnership and teamwork aspect too. That's very mm -hmm. much considered where people trust you to take over when they're out. Yeah. And it's not like you're trying to steal their customers or steal the relationship. It's just a matter of now I'm here to make sure that I'm doing what's best for the property. Mm -hmm. That's actually funny. So you had a pretty crazy schedule for this, right? Were you doing graveyard shift or swing shift or both? I did grave a couple of times, but the grave mm -hmm. was just actually to help my uh, fellow staff members out when they mm -hmm. were, one took a extended vacation and that one sucked. That was like a, I think it was a 9 PM to 6 AM or something. Mm -hmm. And it, that was pretty brutal. Uh, for the most part that I was at four to 12, five to one. Okay. Realistically, I was there an hour or two before an hour or two after, but that, excuse me, that range wasn't that bad if you consider I'm in my early to mid twenties. I'm not going to be in bed before one or two anyway. So mm -hmm. it was actually pretty comfortable for me. Yeah. I mean, we had that, uh, running, not running joke, just that relationship when you live with us that I would be kind of waking up, getting ready for class or doing some last minute homework before school yeah. started and you'd be coming in the front door. Exactly. And so, some of those <laughs> times weren't work related. It was, it was a little more so, uh, enjoyment after work, but yeah, it was a really, really crazy schedule. Yeah. That's pretty funny. So how much longer do you stay at MGM before you kind of, jump over because I know you, you're at wind for a little while before you move back to state college. Yeah. Dude, it's wild. The timelines when you get older, they blur so much. Everything goes together. It was mm -hmm. a year and a half or two years. Okay. Um, you know, I was at the point where I wanted to renegotiate a contract and get to a point that, you know, I was producing notable revenue for what I was getting paid. And I had a significant amount of credit authority, which is basically if a customer comes in and they don't want to bring cash, we approve them for credit lines, just like a bank would. Um, same process, same evaluation. And I had the same amount of credit authority as a lot of senior executives over there. So I had all this risk. 
Um, I was bringing the next amount of revenue way beyond my expectation. I was just looking to get compensated a little more fairly. Uh, asked several times and the, the general consensus was, you know, be patient. We're going to take care of you. But when you're in a company that big and they try to corporatize everything and streamline it, mm-hmm. there's some limitations beyond just your boss saying, oh, yeah, we'll give you more money. So I was frustrated. I went to, uh, ironically, the same guy that I met at the MGM and mm-hmm. even going to win. So I go to talk to him and grab a coffee. Again, didn't really expect anything of it. When I was there, he introduced me to the, the president of the department. The department. He joins us for coffee. Um, we go up in his office and he closes the door and says, I'm not going to leave until you tell me you're going to come over here. So let's make this deal happen. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah, Coffees was, with that guy are really, really valuable. <laughs> super valuable. I know. <laughs> yeah, so it was, uh, it was pretty kind wild. of put you on the spot right there. Yeah, it was actually pretty cool. It was a, from the standpoint of learning, I was 23 or 24 at the time. That's a pretty Didn't high know. pressure moment. Yeah. And this guy was like Rico Suave, man. He was like, if you took the world's most interesting man and put him in a person, it was him. He was like this like silver salt and pepper slick back hair, mm-hmm. really thick Portuguese accent. Um, everything he owned was Louis Vuitton. Like it was just very <laughs> like, he smelled like this like rich European man. Like he was just awesome. And I'm like, man, like I'm really intimidated right now because I, I live at my uncle's house in his, in his guest bedroom. <laughs> Across the hall from me, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, I, I don't even have my own bathroom. I have to share it. So uh-huh. it was, uh, yeah, it was super, super wild. But through that conversation, I, I learned a lot and a great deal. And he basically asked me what I needed to come over there. And I had to be transparent with him. And I also had to be transparent with my expectations and what his should be. I told him flat out, I said, if you're going to hire me for my book, which is my my address book of customers then there's no point to you offering me this you're going to hire me on potential i'm young there's not many people my age in this industry that are successful and the reason i've done well is because i do it right i'm ethical i'm going to come in early i'm going to leave late you're not going to see me sitting in an office because i hate it i'm going to be working the pits there's no customer that's going to be betting black checks which is hundred dollar chips that doesn't have a host that walks out of here without my cart mm-hmm. and he said that's cool so when that came, he's like, all right, well, we negotiated a price or a salary, I guess. And he says, well, I need you to like, what's next now? When do you want to start? He's like, you want to start next week? And I said, no, I have to do this the right way. And I have to go talk to, mm-hmm. you know, MGM and let them know, here's my plans. And he, his words, I'll never forget. He's like, I'm not here to get in a bidding war and I'm not here to start giving you leverage to make more money elsewhere. Mm-hmm. He's like, you asked them for money and they said, no. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm giving you what you want. So I just, I'm telling you this not as a threat, but if you don't choose to come here, you're not going to have another opportunity to work at the win. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty bold, but as I digested it, I asked, I think it was three times. I got a resounding no every time from Jim. So I went over, mm-hmm. talked to the property president, gave him my two weeks. It was not a fun conversation. This was at MGM at the time. At MGM. So this it is the president of MGM that you have to yeah. give your notice to. Yeah. I, I gave my resignation to the property head that I direct, reported to directly. And he was actually gave me a hug and it's like, it really sucks. But unfortunately this is the way we have to do it in this industry. Um, the president wasn't as understanding. He was pretty upset. Um, I think a little ego driven by me leaving because my ties to the, the, the property and then the company, but it was really a, it wasn't a bad experience and you know, I'm sure we're fine now. It wasn't anything sloppy, but there was some disappointment. Mm-hmm. Um, 
course, you're, you're a young guy who's only 23, 24, bringing in all this uh, potential revenue. You know, you've got a potential runway to bring in a lot more. Um, and it was actually, I remember it was Memorial. It was right before Memorial Day weekend because I was a little stressed because I had about six or seven. It was a, one of the few weekends that was really profitable for sports for athletes. And I had, I think, over a, almost a little over a million dollars coming in just through NFL players that I wasn't going to be there for. And I said, hey, if you want me to stick around and work through the week, I'm happy to. I was like, I'm not going to be unethical. I, I'm a team player. I just want to leave on good terms so someday we can mm-hmm. be cordial again and potentially work together. And he's like, no, he's like, you can leave now. So I, was, I wasn't – sometimes they'll walk you off property security. He didn't have – he didn't do that. He called one of the other executives and just told him to go to my office with me and let me leave. So – so when done. you said when you said to win that you um, they shouldn't hire you for your book of business, did that mean that they that you weren't going to bring your customers from Bellagio to the win? No, or- it was just kind of it, it was alluding to like what I said earlier. I, I'm I wasn't foolish enough to know that I didn't form strong enough relationships in one to two years mm-hmm. to guarantee everyone I brought in I was going to bring over to the win. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there were some people that had relationships to other people at MGM that were really important to them. There, there were some people that just at the end of the day, I couldn't compensate them the same way at Wynn as I could at MGM because mm-hmm. Wynn was a much more prestigious property. Um, mm-hmm. That low-end customer at Wynn is a decent customer at MGM. Mm-hmm. So I, I was just letting them know, like, if you have expectations for me and you look at my book of business through the year and what you'd expect me to bring in, um, that existing piece is going to be, it's going to be there, but it's going to be minimal. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to engage and get new business with where you're at. And I'd say probably of the people I thought would go over, I'd say probably 40 to 50% did. Mm-hmm. And the other 50% would do drop and playing that we kept in contact, but it wasn't a hundred percent by any means. I think that was, that was very smart to have that uh, humility to not to say, well, these guys love me so much that no matter what I do, they'll follow me. And just to make sure that's known. Well, you have to do that too, not just for humility, but to protect yourself. Because at the end of the day, if they don't, and they're holding you to ex- expectation in your contract, mm-hmm. you don't meet it, well, then you're just going to get fired or you're going to disappoint them and the relationship is going to be frazzled from the beginning. You, know, you mm-hmm. don't want to stress yourself going into a brand new environment um, with expectations you can't meet. That makes sense. How do you, how, this is one thing that I've been confused about with um, Lewis's dad too, is just like, I don't have that many people in my life and it's hard for me to manage it all. How do you manage that many customers and like reaching out to them and, you know, just keeping that relationship uh, alive for so long? So it's, it's funny that that comparison. And I I would imagine that Matt would agree with me is, you know, when you're starting at the entry level, like I was, Mm -hmm. your amount of customers is just monstrous. Like you go with volume and then the longer you get into it, you quote unquote trim the fat. And what you need to gain the time and experience of a senior executive is going to require a lot higher level gameplay. So your pool gets broken down further and further and further. And that core group that you're taking care of is just really valuable. They're high end customers, mm-hmm. influential. They're really close. You're really close and deep tied relationships with them. And they're, you're going to get referral business and your active frontline marketing has shifted a lot. So, it's almost it's like, like gorilla. It's like guerrilla marketing at the beginning, where it's like you don't even you're just kind of throwing cards everywhere you can. Versus the longer you're into it, it's more tactical. 
And then you get to the point when you're doing it for 20 years where the people you're taking care of are genuinely friends. They're mm -hmm. being invited to your wedding. You know, they're at your, your kids' birthday parties. Mm -hmm. There's a strong relationship that's forged so well, it's no different than managing a friendship. There's mm -hmm. some tough conversations that happen, but it is a true friendship to the core. They know you have your be their best interests at heart. There's trust there. Um, I, I'd be interested to hear what Lewis's dad says about it when it comes to back in the day. Before mm -hmm. there were Blackberries, you know, black, when I was doing it, it was the Blackberry. I had everything in my Blackberry. I set reminders to call people. I'd meet someone in the pit, set a reminder of my Blackberry to call them in two months. Mm -hmm. I'd create Excel sheets that I had that had everyone's name, their average play, uh, their credit line or their cash value, that, where they're from. And I'd fill that out mm -hmm. once every week or two. I'd have a notepad and I'd fill it all out. And I had this just database of thousands of people that I could sort through and filter through to, uh, to kind of digest that and see who I should follow up and who I can invite to what. Yeah. That's what I was getting at. was like, uh, like a CRM that you had of people like a customer relationship management where mm -hmm. I, you can't just keep thousands of people in your head. You know, you yeah. have to have systems to do it. So that would be interesting yeah. to hear from yeah. Lewis's dad. Yeah. And I, I would say that, you know, any good host is going to tell you that, you're not managing thousands. You're managing a couple hundred. You might be booking thousands, but they're going to reach out to you via email or text. And mm -hmm. It's less hands-on. I mean, there's still people that text me and it's ironic because it'll be like six years. You know, they're like, dude, I haven't heard, I haven't heard from anyone in a while. And I'm here for some random guy. Like, hey, how are you doing? I have no idea who this is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, you are also offering a service that people need and they want when they come to Vegas. So um, if they have that contact versus calling a call center, they're going to reach out too. So it's a, it operates itself a little bit. Yeah. yeah. If I were to do it if you, now, if you have yeah. that reputation of getting things done. Yeah. And if I were to do it now, I'd be so much more buttoned up and I have different systems in place to be a little more automated and more efficient. Mm -hmm. um, but back then with one, what I knew and two, what was available from a, a digital resource wasn't quite the same as it is now. Mm -hmm. So uh, how much longer did he stay at Win? Uh, and then we can kind of start transitioning into I was at Win for a little over a year. It okay. wasn't real long. I was getting burnt out on the industry. Um, mm -hmm. The days of the the large payoff were diminishing. You know, the people they were coming up and they're still making you know good money, but they weren't making the the money that they once were able to. Mm -hmm. You're surrounded by so much money that it it's hard not to want some. And at the end of the mm -hmm. day, it just it wasn't an environment that I wanted to be at when I was settled down and had children. Mm -hmm. For my mid twenties, I do it all over, and it was fantastic. But once I was getting in my late twenties, I'm like, I need to find a different means to to live and kind of find happiness outside of uh, success in the workplace. Like, what's going to mm -hmm. keep me happy from a personal standpoint and an emotional standpoint, and a little more on the critical thinking side. And kind of your answer is like family. Family is a huge piece. Mm -hmm. Family is a huge piece. And so is it just kind of like the timing lines up where your dad's preparing to? Uh, take over some of these businesses and wants you to join him or yeah yeah so the timing was that yeah. so he bought a, a failing business a business that was um ready to go bk he brought mm -hmm. cash into it and this is back and, home in pennsylvania yeah in state, in state college and he had 250 employees so that's that's hard to manage with one person mm -hmm. so he needed help um asked me if i was interested and i almost immediately was because there's a lot of opportunity beyond just salary Mm -hmm. to make money when you when you have ownership in business side equity when i went into it you have opportunities to um, 
offset some other expenses that you couldn't normally. So I didn't need to make as much. And then you have residual potentially if you run a successful business and you phase out over the 20, 30 years, you can continue to take money out and profit sharing. So there's an easier ability to find retirement versus having to make um, increasing amounts of money year over year and mm -hmm. savings and other investments. Okay. So you kind of finish up the, the Vegas career and you, this was it kind of like a hard decision to make or did it kind of seem because I mean, you spent was, four five, six years building a career and a specific skill set and the network, obviously, uh, it, it was really hard. Um, I love my day to day job. Going that, that's a big jump from, you know, 26 living in a, a huge city, uh, totally different way of life to going back to a college town, uh, where you're born and raised and all those things. Yes. And, and I think I needed that a little bit. I need to reframe my mindset and get back to the basics and the roots of what really matters. And I kind of saw that and that's why I really wanted to get back to, I, I will say that there's parts of it I miss. And if I could go back and be a host now, I'd be five times better than I ever was. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm hundred percent happy with my decision. So how did, what was your role? Did your dad just kind of call you out and say, I want you to be my general manager or I want you to run a specific part of the business. Yeah. What, what was the and business? What was the business? Yeah. So it's Hotel State College and Company. It's seven revenue centers um, ranging from a nightclub to casual gourmet restaurants to a really small boutique hotel. Mm -hmm. um, the hotel's more of a formality. It's nothing that money's been invested to. It's how we are able to own our liquor license, which is obviously our largest asset. So it's... And in Pennsylvania, that's, that's difficult to have. A, that's like a big deal in Pennsylvania. In some states, it doesn't matter as much, right? The liquor license some states and even some counties like the downtown borough specifically is you, they're not issuing more liquor licenses. So that's once it's done, it's done. But, um, initially I was focused on nightlife and, and the bars and throughout time I transitioned more and more to other aspects of it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, right now I, I'm the local, we have new ownership. Mm -hmm. Um, we were bought out in December, um, by Pat Croce and company who, uh, pretty well off and diversified business guy. At one point he was the president of the 76ers. So oh. his, uh, his son-in-law and his son operate it. They're out of Philly. We have properties down in Florida and we have properties here. I'm the highest in charge, I guess, quote unquote, locally. I'm the director mm -hmm. of operations. I handle almost exclusively, exclusively the day-to-day -day, uh, -day operations along with our financial controller. Uh, but then a lot of the, new concept development and stuff is handled a lot more through the two principles. Okay. Uh, did you feel that this was a job kind of you're ready for, uh, or, or not like necessarily current position, yeah. but leading up to it over the past couple of years at the time when I left Vegas mm -hmm. and came here, I was overconfident. I thought I knew more than I did. Mm -hmm. I mean, cause uh, that's kind of the whole point of being a host, right? Is kind of being yeah. a overconfident, like you said, suave guy. Uh, well, not the whole yeah, point, but, but you come across as like a large personality and you have to be well, very sure of yourself. Yeah. yeah. But at the end of the day, your day-to-day -day skills are, you know, your dad's level, there's a lot, there, there's other functions and responsibilities mm -hmm. he had that I didn't that are a lot more savvy. Mm -hmm. Mine was very much, let's keep this, get this customer in, make sure we're responsible with their accounts so they're profitable and continue booking business. 
So I just thought I understood and knew more than I did about business. And I came mm-hmm. back here and when you start going over financial statements and P&Ls and really diving into different line items and how you can save money and the different costs associated and tax liabilities associated with each customer and then you have healthcare and all these different aspects, you realize quickly it's like, holy shit, I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. So it took me probably about three years in this business to get to a point where I would say I was good. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Like what I did now I'm pretty confident about what I do. I, I make some good decisions. If I make a bad decision, I know why um, we think very critically here and we have a, a really strong sharing of opinions. You know um, we like to value opinions, but we want you to hold them loosely. So if mm-hmm. I have an idea and I'm like really passionate about it and the, the bosses say, no, I, I can't get glued to that and be butt hurt. It's like, all right, well on to the next, mm-hmm. but I, I would definitely say where I'm at now. I, I feel like I, I tremendous value. I understand the complexities of business um, mm-hmm. in this sector, in this industry, pretty inside now. That's awesome. So how did, how was your um, headspace affected by the mood? Like you said that before you were kind of trying to think critically and get back to where you were happy. Did going back to state college do that for you? Absolutely. Cause I was challenged every day. I mean, I was thrown into something where I had to, I had to humble myself and ask for help because if I didn't, I was never going to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's one of the biggest and most critical pieces of learning is um, own your shit. Like if you don't know something or you mess up, just own it be like, okay, well ask for help. Don't have an ego and then allow yourself mm-hmm. to develop and grow. And um, I had to do that for years. So, I mean, I still do. And I still think it's an important principle, but um, that, that was what allowed me to, get to where I am, but I was happy the whole way because it was really challenging. That's good. And there was some serious bumps in the road that weren't smooth and it really put your back against the wall. Kind of even like this, like this sucks, but every day is a new experience. Mm -hmm. Thinking critically, there's an opportunity in every shitty situation. Like this sucks, but there's opportunities and ways to develop and grow in every single situation. Mm -hmm. This is what to me, I find I thrive off of and gives me value is, um, I can wake up and go to bed each day feeling positive about what's been done. Yeah, it's during these crisis times where there's like, there is a, um, it's not equal to when everything's normal. You know, there's yeah. a lot more opportunity out there right now than there usually mm-hmm. is. It's just harder to get. Well, everyone's kind of uh, under the assumption or state of mind where they're expectant of change or they're at least people assume that things are going to be different coming out of this, which gives you a lot of leeway as manager or director. So I'm making decisions to make changes because there's that opportunity where people expect uh, that things just have to change right now. But, but not only the expectation, the reality is we, exactly. we, can't be, we can't be foolish in expecting that as we transition and get out of this pandemic, that it's going to be the same. Mm-hmm. The industry is going to be forever changed from this. Um, we have to find ways to better insulate ourselves from stuff like this. We have to find ways to operate more efficiently because we're going to be taking a bath financially, mm-hmm. even with government resources. You know, there's no way that uh, the government can tell you you have to shut down um, right or wrong and then expect us just to get out of it unscathed. There's going to be a lot of businesses that don't have the resources to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's going to be a learning curve and finding creative ways to allow people to come back and be social and be comfortable. That's going to be uh, a lot to, a lot to figure out. Yeah. But that's also fun. Again, that's where the opportunity lies mm-hmm. and the ability to kind of look outside of, okay, here's our old systems. How mm-hmm. can we refresh our new systems to 
kind of meet with the community needs and what they want and what your customer wants to feel comfortable mm -hmm. and then make sure you're making money. You know, at the end of the day, every business exists to make money. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. not a matter of greed. It's a matter of reality and um, what the well, margins won't survive are. either way. Yeah. And, and what the margins are, then you can evaluate what the greed level is. But for the most part, especially in our industry, like you're not making money hand over fist. Your margins are slim. Um, you pay your employees as competitively as you can and, and you keep trying to grow. And when you can make more money, you give your employees more money. Mm -hmm. so. so there's a uh, seven or a lot of different businesses within this. There's, you know, kind of nightclub bar scene. There's just standard kind of parents restaurant. There's more student focused restaurants, which would you say is like your favorite to run? I know you might be a little more high level than that now and kind of big picture, but which, is, which do you have the most fun with? Yeah. Operating. Cause you kind that's of, really, it's you got a hotel, you got a restaurant, you got, I mean, the hotel, the hotel, the things. Least, the hotel is my least favorite. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of hard to get excited about a hotel when you're, when you're used to working for the Wynn and Bellagio and <laughs> those are the nicest hotels in the world. Like it was, um, I was super spoiled. Uh, that's one thing I miss a lot. I would say I really, really enjoy different segments of each one. Like I love the nightclub in terms of the volume. Cause I mean, when I've seen right. you down there, it seems like the couple of times I've been down there with you, uh, I say down there cause it's a basement club. Yeah. Uh, it kind of looks like you're having fun and you're kind of in a it, good element it's there. A, it, it's a blast. I'm comfortable, but it's also high energy. People mm -hmm. are there for the strict purpose of having fun. People don't go there when they're mad. They go there just to have fun. So all you're doing is throwing a party and just managing and making sure your employees are efficient. My personal opinion is the busier it is, the easier it is to manage your employees because when there's not downtime, people are cranking their maxed out at efficiency there. It, it just works. It's a well machine. Mm -hmm. It's when it's slower that the you identify kinks and things that aren't going well. Um, we have a, a pub or a Zeno, Zeno's like pub that's kind of a beer garden that's embrace, quote unquote embraces the unusual. It's mm -hmm. a little more hipster, a little more live music. Really a fun spot, not my normal lane of socialization, but it's fun to go down to and it's fun to experience. And uh, the bartenders there are awesome. Like just great stories like, mm -hmm old deadheads and stuff like that. Like just really fun to be around. Very artsy. Um, Geographically, it's all in one block, right? Yeah. All the building, all everything's connected. Yeah. You kind of just wow. fall a couple times to follow you around in there. You just kind of open a door and you're inside the nightclub and then you turn around, take me through a back hallway and then we're in the kitchen of the restaurant and then we go up a staircase and we're, yeah. it's kind of confusing, but it's yeah. just all, you can be from like any property or any other businesses to any other in like 30, 45 seconds or something. Exactly. So, so you got to make it very operationally efficient to be able to, to have your hand in every different business every day or every 20 minutes. Yeah. If, if they weren't connected, I, it'd be extremely challenging and take a lot. I don't know if you can identify that and do that with one director. You might need multiple layers of that executive management. Um, the, the age of our building is problematic at times. It's old, this right? Building, parts old. of the building are well over 100 years old. So it's not as efficient in those capacities, but it's definitely um, having it connected and being close is, is ideal. And I think really one of the keys to being successful. Just the sharing of resources and buying power alone. Mm -hmm. You know, we have mm -hmm. dry goods commissaries and central liquor, liquor areas that if someone runs out of inventory, they can go from transfer from somewhere else and you can continue to service that customer. Yeah. It's economies of scale, right? Like you, it just makes everything easier and cheaper for everybody. That, that's, that's the only, that's the really the only reason to 
grow the restaurant business and expand, in my opinion, is your economies of scale. That's where you improve your margins. Mm -hmm. So buying uh, power is key. Yeah. So now that kind of everything's closed for the time being, I know you've been doing a lot. I know you had that TV feature. Uh, you've been trying to use the resources you have, the economies of scale of having a kitchen that feeds seven different restaurants uh, to help out the community. So can you tell a little bit about what those projects have been kind of the past month or two? We so, so we, we have very like uh, emotional and philanthropic owners, which is pretty cool. So we've taken big steps back and uh, focusing on the business on the front line mm -hmm. focus in terms of what can we do for the community? What's the community need? How can we do something that feels right? And our mm -hmm. idea and the concept that I was hoping would take off a little more was if we can do this every week and get meals into people's mouths that need them, mm -hmm. maybe it'll challenge our competitors to do the same thing. Sure. That'd be amazing if that kind of became an expectation. And, and, like, and that was what I was really pushing for. So hoping that we'd have like 40 different restaurants kind of chipping in and donating X, Y, and Z mm -hmm. to help the people that, you know, ultimately let us keep our lights on throughout the year. Well, I mean, the college um, towns are hit especially hard since this, this 40,000 kids just didn't come back or whatever the number is. Yeah. It's over 40,000. It's wild. So that we've had a huge focus on that philanthropic approach. Um, shutting down a property this size is almost impossible to truly shut it down. Like, we can't not be here. Mm -hmm. I'm here. We have a facilities manager that comes in that helps because things just need maintenance. Um, mm -hmm. you know, we have, I went through four different walk-ins and I've donated hundreds of cases to the, uh, what's it called? Uh, food bank. Mm -hmm. There's been equally, if not more that I've had to get rid of that was perishable that, would have been good to open and then they extended the mandate and they extended the mandate and it just forced things to go bad. I can't donate food that's not in the right quality. That so, makes sense. Um, just as much as it was thrown out. Before you guys called, like I said, I was doing dishes. Mm -hmm. um, stuff gets dirty and you have to just run stuff through and keep it clean. And uh, We had a leak at the, there's a space we subleased that had a massive leak. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that next because when we asked you about two, three weeks ago to schedule this, you're like, hold up, something just exploded. It was nuts. <laughs> Literally, so a giant water main exploded because the plaster ceiling fell on it. Um, a hundred year old plastic ce plaster ceiling fell, broke the water main, flooded. It was a, it's a 7,000 square foot room that was, had seven inches of water the whole way through it. Oh my flooded god. Flooded down below it was CVS, ruined basically everything in CVS, then flooded below that through concrete ceiling into the nightclub. So bunch of a, a ton of different layers to navigate through that because you have a business that CVS that we have nothing to do with. Mm -hmm. You have the You're business just neighbors. The yeah. You have the business on the top floor that is subleased by Penn State by mm -hmm. us. And then you have the landlords that own the building. And then you have the space we operate in the basement. So Tons of different insurance components involved, um, maintenance components. Still, it, all the demo took a while. There's over 36,000 pounds of ceiling that was removed, um, which is huge when you actually think about how much weight that is. Yeah. Um, 16 <laughs> ton of ceiling. And then now they're starting to put drywall up and kind of refurbish it. Yeah, so it reminds me of like the old adage about like a old – like a. Um a house without people in it just breaks down because no one, you, you know, you got to walk through the hotel and turn on all the, the faucets and stuff just to make sure everything yeah. flows. Right. And like, that's exactly. Especially in old buildings. If you don't do that, mm -hmm. you're going to get, you're, you're not going to like the surprise. I mean, just our keg systems, you know, the keg systems can't just sit with beer in them. Mm -hmm. You have to clean it. You have to clean every single keg line. You have to make sure all your 
liquor is covered up and sealed. You have to make sure the food that can be frozen is frozen so you're not losing more money on the shelves. Um, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And then you have all employees that you have to be able to communicate with because it's our job to help make sure they can, you know, get on unemployment and do these things they need to do to survive. So that's been uh so you've been keeping busy for yeah, sure with everything. You're, you're not been one of those people going on Facebook just saying, all right, more Netflix recommendations, more Netflix recommendations. No, not at all. <laughs> it's a blessing though too. I mean, I like Tiger King was pretty awesome, but mm -hmm. uh, and you made some good edits. Good so you're the first one to make the, uh, the edit I saw. Because it became popular yeah, I, after that. You were ahead of the curve on putting. I'm pretty sure I was. And I thought my the quality of my edit was pretty superior. But It was. This, little, graphic design is something you learned on the job for this job. Because I know you also kind of manage social media. It's just kind of on the side for fun. Uh, yeah, I just, I mean, I, I pay someone to manage your actual social okay. media accounts. I just enjoy doing that kind of stuff and goofing around and mm -hmm. self-taught. Uh, especially like when I had a daughter, you want to learn how to make sure all the pictures look cuter and just all the random shit I've done over the years and through different apps has really just been a hobby. Um, but what, what's more fun than putting your dad's face on Joe exotic. I mean, that's, that's as good as it gets. It's, <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, well, that's a pretty good uh, summary of the, or a pretty good walk through the different things. I think we're going to transition to kind of some more personal life topics we skipped over. Uh, Cause I know you're a huge bodybuilder for a couple of years. Uh, or power building. I know. I don't know what the term you use there in the text. Yeah. Was. So I, I use power building because I, I was never going to step on stage. I kind of, mm -hmm. I like to lift heavy shit, but I wanted to look good. Mm -hmm. There's this balance of like powerlifting and bodybuilding and not in the competition sense. It was just very much in the sense of vanity and sense of vanity and just being healthy and being strong and mm -hmm. alpha and whatever that may have been back in my mid twenties. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as I got older and I suffer from injuries from being young and dumb, I would do things a lot differently, but I think there's a lot of values that can be taken out of sports and athletics and setting goals and mm -hmm. um, working through pain. Um, but I also think it's important to be smart about how you train. Yes. And, so what are some, some of those lessons you have for uh, people kind of doing that powerlifting bodybuilding hybrid so they don't kind of wake up at 31 and want to just switch to a different sport because they hurt? The big thing is listen to your body. You're, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be walking out of the gym feeling worse than when you went in. I'm a, th that is something that you just need to tell yourself all the time. Like, yeah, there's gonna be leg workouts that you just crush and you feel like you want to throw up, but there's a mm -hmm. difference between like pushing yourself to the absolute limit and hurting yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of people, your body tells you when they're, that they know, it knows the difference. It knows the different levels of stresses and don't ignore that. Um, value, times to refeed value sleep value the things that allow you your body to heal um, the whole time you're building muscle you're damaging muscle mm -hmm. so you need to let it reheal and repair itself and get stronger um, you need to do it in a fashion that allows your tendons and your joints to catch up and be smart proper warm-ups proper cooldowns there, there's so many different levels of it the big thing is take a passion and learning the science of it Mm -hmm. um, because you only, you really do only get one body and there's parts of me that I'll never be repaired from just being an idiot. But I was, I was never so far into a, into the idiocy of it where I am permanently hurt. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm going to have a, I, I limp more than I should for some of my age and I have cracks in my shoulders that I probably shouldn't have. I had elbow surgery a few, few mm -hmm. weeks ago that I wouldn't have had if I wasn't an idiot, but 
Um, I, I don't want to say I'd change any of it because I appreciate the path, but mm -hmm. I'd do things a little smarter if mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to. Um, so you're power building during your days like at the Bellagio and at the Wynn? So when I stopped playing college basketball in 2008 or 2007, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I got heavy into lifting. My roommate at the time was a huge meathead, and he just got me into it. And I put all my energy that was into basketball for all those years mm -hmm. and just absorbed it right into lifting. And from that time until I was probably 29, mm -hmm. it was just all so I like did. like two, three years ago? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I was super heavy into it. At one point, I was up to 250 pounds, and I was a pretty big guy. I was strong. What were I, some of your PRs? Oh, yeah, what were some of your kind of best achievements from lifting? Um, yeah, my, 250. My, my mom does uh, – she always gets – looks at picture any picture of you, what, you're 250, and she goes, he was too big in that picture. It's so funny yeah. every time. <laughs> so my, strong, my strongest clean bench was 385. Um, I muscle-fucked 405 before, but I don't think it counts. So I, I don't like to evaluate that, but a clean bench is – 385. Um, my deadlift was 575. Squat mm -hmm. was 575. Um, so I moved a decent amount of weight for something that wasn't. That's a like lot of weight. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's people that go to a gym now and there's people that just do stupid amounts of just insane. But um, I was pretty strong by most, most people's standards. I think now, so. My, my 225 bench is what I was always probably the most proud of because I did 29 reps in college. Um, wow. So that was pretty cool. So that's like combine quality yeah but better than a lot of people in the combine yeah i, I ran like a 5 12 40 but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I <could bench> it. <laughs> if you're stationary if that was the the job of an nfl player for sure do you think exactly. that's kind of uh you said earlier a little bit about how you had some nfl players as your customers do you think that kind of helped with that being like a kind of beefy like strong guy that you're like all right this guy kind of gets our culture a little bit of like gym and mm. fitness or not really or i'm totally oh, off on that one no, it more when I became a host, I actually had to trim down a little bit because it wasn't appealing to look like a security guard because <laughs> most of my customers are older, mm -hmm. you know, unless it's a rich divorcee, they really don't care that you're a muscle bound meathead. They being athletic and in shape helps, but you don't want to have to carry the stigmas of some meathead. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you're carrying those uh, Tupperware tubs to work, like the little special refrigerator bo boxes with like I, six meals in them. I was doing that before. It was cool, man. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was definitely, uh, it was more beneficial in the terms of it gave me self-confidence mm -hmm. allowed me to you know, walk tall and feel good about myself. Um, the football players, they just liked that I was young. Yeah. And it wasn't some 65 year old trying to hang out with them. Mm -hmm. um, most of those relationships weren't strong. I, I don't, Selfish. I, w I wouldn't say that they were exactly people I'd surround myself with if it wasn't for work. Mm -hmm. um, there's a few guys that I know that from Penn State that came to come to our club still that that relationship's different because I know them a little more intimately and I, I think I value who they are as people. But mm -hmm. of my of my customers in Vegas, there was a very small portion of athletes that I actually would want to hang out with outside of the workplace. Okay. Uh, that actually reminded me of something we kind of skipped over when you talked about your relationships with some of the Penn State players was the uh, the meal prep company. Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of your was that your own idea? Yeah, that was that was an it was idea. Called actually. gourmet gains, right? Yeah, and it was something I, I created because I had friends, and it was selfish, and I had friends that just didn't want to cook meals all the time. I don't know if it's um, selfish, but 
seemed like an opportunity. I, I just, like I just don't want to cook meals, and I have chefs at my disposal. So we started this meal prep thing that was never really meant to be a big revenue generator. It was mm-hmm. just meant to be incremental income you get throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And at be first, genuinely convenient for the customers. Right? Yeah. And at, at first it really took off for the first few months and then it fizzled. And the reason it fizzled was my passion was to create meals that allowed you to see progress in the gym, in the gym and in, out in physically everyone else's passion was they just didn't want to cook. So there's a few people that loved it, but most people just like, Oh, well we want more flavor and they want to dress and they just want me to prep meals for them that they could go and have macaroni and cheese with fried chicken on it Mm -hmm. and i just didn't have a desire for that it was not passion you wanted to run this to be a fitness tool exactly and this is not not just like a delivery service i don't have data to back this but i think it's the feel is right in terms of what i've seen is that that really infatuated with health community Mm -hmm. typically doesn't seem to have the disposable income that allows them to buy meals like that all the time. Um, I, I think if you were to somehow quantify the average earning versus someone that is only focused on health and their whole life revolves around the gym, they probably don't make as much as some other people do. And so the, the market that I was actually pursuing really wasn't in it. Okay. Every spring, every spring I'd see a, a bump from people that, and a, the, Penn State guys that wanted to go to the NFL that needed to be healthy, mm-hmm. I can see a big spike from those guys, but um, it was kind of seasonal in that respect. Yeah, so there was a big uh, the, what my passion for and why I did it. There was a disconnect for it locally. Yeah, mm-hmm. just, it, it wasn't. There mm-hmm. wasn't a, a consumer base in a small town with average income not being very very great. And it's mostly students with yeah su- support function. So yeah. Uh, so, so I just fizzled out. Now that's still a passion of mine. I've helped people. At my my sister is the GM of an MMA gym, and, and she's um, a beast. We could get her on here too, talking about being. A, she's a badass. Yeah, she's. She. Uh, I've helped some of the fighters there. You know, drop a couple mm-hmm. pounds to make weight, um, just because I enjoy it. You know, I'm not a registered dietitian, but you got into the I'm, science I'm, of it back in the day. Yeah, I, I know enough about it where I can help people lose some weight. I'm not going to be able to let them get them to the point where they want to step on stage and mm-hmm. be a bodybuilder, but I can get people to have a six pack. Mm-hmm. So. We need to talk then. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Okay. Uh, so then you've, you kind of fizzle out of lifting and now you're really like we were just talking about, you're really into that fighting yourself now, aren't you? Yeah. So I, I never fully got out of lifting. I still lift. I'll mm-hmm. always train. I'll do it to the day I die. I think that one, there's a little bit of, I, I use this term playfully now, like body dysmorphia. Like I care about how I look. Like I don't want to have a dad bod. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be much as my dad wants you to have one, but I, I won't do it. Like I, yeah. I'm always going to, I want to feel good when I take my shirt off at the beach, just like most guys, but it's not at the same level of desire. My focus now is like, I love jujitsu. Um, I think it's mentally, physically, uh, camaraderie wise, I think it is the best sport out there versus any other sport I played. There's a huge mental component. There's a huge physical component. Mm-hmm. Um, it's safe. It, it's not like fighting where you're getting concussions and all these other injuries. You get some injuries here and there, but it's a safe sport. It's extremely competitive. You push yourself mentally and physically, and it's something you can do mm-hmm. well into your older years. Cause you only so, started like a few years ago. Yeah. I've only done a little, almost three years, two and a half years, maybe. But, um, 
what really got me hooked on it was I was really big when I started, like strong. And so you thought uh, you'd be strong? I just thought I'd be. I was like, oh, these guys can't take me. I, how hard can grappling be? <laughs> yeah, and you're this big 6'4", 230, or not 6'4", 6'2", 230, just. Yeah, 235 at the time. I was like, dude, this will be no problem. These little guys. So first guy I roll with, I'm like, oh, I'm going to smoke this guy. He was an upper belt. I was like, no, no problem. He just destroyed me, dude. Like, fucking annihilated me <laughs> to the point where he wasn't even trying, like, effortless. I'm just like, dude, like, this is embarrassing. I, I can't, I, there's no way I'm this weak. And I'm like, man, who is that guy? And he ended up being a Penn State wrestler. So I'm like, oh, I felt a little better about it. At the time. And because Penn State, for people who don't know, is like one of the best wrestling programs in the whole country. No, it's the best. It is the it best. Is, there is no better dynasty in the nation than Penn State wrestling. Even Alabama football cannot compare to Penn State wrestling. Um, so I got smoked. I'm like, all right, well, he's a Penn State wrestler, so that's no big deal. And then I go against this purple blood who's bigger than me, and I got smashed, but I expected that. Then I go against a black belt who was 115 pounds, and he destroyed me. 115, and you're 230. 115 pounds. <laughs> Smoked me. And then I roll with this guy, and this is not – this sounds like a joke. It wasn't. The wor- one of the worst cases of scoliosis I've ever seen. Blue belt, like really shifty, and he just wrecked me. And I'm like, there's no way I'm this much of a pussy. There's no way. And from that point on, I'm like, I need to get good at this. And it makes you humble because you realize you're not tough. I realized that nothing in the weight room I did made me tough. Now strength matters and size matters, but that gym you learn to respect other people. You learn not to judge. You learn to walk away from circumstances where you might not have before. And you just push your body to limits that you never could. Like, I mean, before I'd be like, oh, I can touch my toes. Now oh, I can put my, damn near put my head behind my, my uh, feet behind my head because when you're getting twisted like a pretzel, like you just slowly, it's like kind of a, it's like alpha yoga is what mm-hmm. I call it. I mean, it's just, it's really an awesome, and it's an awesome sport because of the respect that's in it. I mean, a, a great community of people, people that are professors at Penn State, to people that are students, to people that are doctors, I mean, you mm-hmm. name it, we have representation at that facility. So that, that camaraderie that you don't necessarily have in a weight room with people carrying gallon jugs of water, you definitely get um, in the jiu-jitsu gym. So. Okay, and it's so, practical. So do you think now that you have uh, some – skill and like some knowledge of the sport like in some technique do you think you're helped tremendously by your strength training outside of jujitsu or really comes down to the technique it's both i mean it's Mm -hmm. i think one comparison is for every 25 pounds you have on someone it's almost like a belt rank okay um and and there's exceptions to the rule and there's people that there's you know obviously the professional level guys like you're not going to touch but for the most part you know I take, if you take someone of equal characteristics in terms of skill set and one person's stronger, the stronger mm-hmm. person's going to win. Not most sense. times. I mean, you're going to get caught here and there, but um, you have to understand those characteristics. Though. I mean, you know, there's, there's, they play a part and they matter, but they're not everything. Okay. Well, it's uh, something that maybe I'll have to get into. I know my sister and I did one Muay Thai class with Elise, but that was just kind of like a, for fun. We were hanging out and we were being family. But maybe we'll have to do that next next year, list. Yeah, jujitsu. Well, your brother's big into it, Kyle. So, well, he was. He hasn't been doing it recently. Uh, he got he got an injury, but he does the Gracie Bar Baja Gracie Barra, uh, those gyms. Yeah, the uh, and Muay Thai is different. Like that's striking based, yeah. versus grappling, and that just it's a great sport. It just doesn't grab my attention in the same way that jujitsu did. Mm-hmm. 
you don't want to get just like I mean I when I was living in Thailand the kids that did it you just see you could spot them pretty easily because their shins and arms were just different Destroyed. colors yeah yeah, yeah and, and you just see you look for the cauliflower ear. yeah well that's just wrestling you got to make sure that doesn't happen to you the cauliflower ear especially as big as my ears are that'd be terrible oh yeah <laughs> I saw you uh, yeah um so the good transition here is you, you have to wrestle your dog now because you don't have a partner since mm-hmm. I do. Uh, there's no gyms that are open and you don't want to spread the diseases or anything or catch anything. So you've been wrestling with your pit bulls. Uh, yes, can you tell I, us a little bit more about a little bit more about the pit bulls and kind of. Yeah. So I have an American bulldog and I have a pit bull. Uh, they are polar opposite. My American bulldog is like the ideal perfect dog. And my pit bull is a beautiful nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> He was a rescue and he's super high energy. Uh, he's a giant lap dog. If someone broke in my house, my bulldog, who's the bigger of the two, would run away and the pit bull would try to lick him to death. Uh, absolutely so far from anything a watchdog that you'd think from looking at them. But they were, Atlas in particular, was actually a really critical piece of my life because when I first moved back, I would go out a lot. And you go out because you get bored. And when I go out, you drink and you party and have fun and that's all great. But I'm like, I, need, I can't go out this much. Like I can't be hung over at work. I can't just do this shit. And I, so instead of getting, I was like, I'll get a dog. And I, he really was a great companion for me. So I got him and we hang out at the house. <coughs> and, uh, kind of a good way for me to get old. Sure. Uh, live a different lifestyle. You kind of got a dog to force you to have to come speaking home. Speaking of, night. speaking of getting old, you recently had a baby. How's yeah, that experience that's awesome. for you? How's it that is, kind of changed things for you? And tell us about that. It turns your world upside down, but it is the most rewarding and the coolest. All the sappy cliche shit you hear is 100% true. Like everything about the little girl just makes my day better. Like it's watching her grow every day and develop mm-hmm. and having this bond with her. It is absolutely the coolest thing in the world. Nothing I could explain and nothing you can understand until you have a child is unlike anything I've ever experienced. It's not all sunshine and rainbows and there's challenges, but, mm-hmm. but you're it's, loving worth, it. it's worth the no sleep and it's worth the other struggles that come up because of it for sure. That's awesome. Yeah, she, she runs the house, no doubt. Already. <laughs> yeah. She's right sassy. Now, what's, like, what's her, what's her personality so far? She's what, six months, eight months? She's uh, seven months. Yeah. She's a, uh, she just loves, she's a happy baby. Like every other parent I've talked to, I'm lucky. Like she just smiles and wants to giggle and have fun. And really a sweet little girl. She's got a ton of emotion over the last like two, three months. She's gotten curious and you see personality, this vibrant little human. Um, and it's at the perfect age cause she's not crawling yet, but she's active. So if I set her down, she's not going to go anywhere. Um, so it's still pretty tame at the house. When she starts moving, that all changes. So, okay. Pretty wild. She I mean, sleeps through the night too. So, she's got some uh, pretty athletic genetics. I mean, we didn't talk about Brittany hardly at all, but she was a gymnast. She she actually gets on the stage in bodybuilding or has. Yeah, she's you're very strong yourself. Training, she's training for a show right now, actually. Still, so she had a baby. She's back on stage, wow. and Dude, what, less than a year Artie, later, Artie's got a six pack. So, <laughs> your baby's she's, gonna be doing curls in a couple months. Just pump. I said, if if that baby doesn't come out with a six pack of tattoos, it's not my kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny uh so yeah. i uh kind of last two types of questions we have here are the favorites question uh what are like i know you're a huge arnold arnold sylvester stallone so this is kind of <laughs> where we give you a shout out to say favorite books podcasts movies 
bodybuilders music just tell us a little bit more about those guys and some of your favorite media influences so i've never been a big reader in terms of books mm-hmm. um, probably been something i should imp- it's something i should improve on but just to sit down and grab a book that's 300 pages just doesn't interest me i love podcasts i love articles like the, mm-hmm. the wonderful thing about social media is you have all the bullshit meme sources, but you actually have some really good information that comes out too. Mm-hmm. And there's so Definitely. many great ways to receive news and media nowadays. That is just awesome. Um, great, just great research out there. So throughout the day, I mean, I, I spend tons of time through different um, web forums with like Baker Tilly and some other great resources. Mm-hmm. I'll read uh, most of the podcasts I get, I get from my buddy who's, he's a financial advisor. That's not mm-hmm. why we're friends, but he happens to be one. And he's probably early fifties to mid fifties. Uh, into CrossFit, used to be a cross country guy, just an awesome person. Um, he sends me stuff, so I'll listen to that. My boss, bosses, Jeff and Michael, are both uh, into meditation and they're very into reading and learning and they send stuff, so kind of all different avenues. Most of what I read is leadership-based or mm-hmm. um, specific to my industry. Mm-hmm. Over the last few years, I tried to get out of the political side because I find it's just too convoluted and mm-hmm. too skewed. Um, not as helpful kind of for day-to-day life. It's not teaching things that really help you do your job better, live better. In the purpose is just skewed. The purpose is to prove a point rather than to get better and develop and grow, which Mm -hmm. I think is important. Like I'm not going to waste my time consuming information. That's not going to be beneficial when there's every time I do that, I miss an opportunity to grow and get better. Mm -hmm. Completely. Um, I think conversation is really important. I think you learn a ton through conversation. That's what your, the name of your podcast is, is critical. I mean, Mm -hmm. Every one of these, you might not learn a lot. But there's gonna be little bits and nuggets you take away from each one that kind Completely. of help ways to implement and things to do moving forward. So I think it's really ways critical. to think. Yeah, and that's kind of the point of the whole podcast is for me and Lewis to learn. You know, it's our tagline, but it, it's really true too. Well, so, so many people listen to like motivational speakers and read books, and they expect like every nugget to be like this golden goose that's gonna allow you to grow and develop and get bigger. And that's not mm-hmm. what like life and learning is about. It's about what bits and pieces can you take away from something to get better and grow? And I think mm-hmm. that's what conversations like this have. Like, there's many things you say to me, I'm like, holy shit, like I need to apply that and think about it that way. Or why do you ask me the question and frame it that way? Um, just different perspectives are really a great way to develop and challenge yourself, especially as a leader and a manager. For sure. Uh, and then the, the second half of that question, because I know just a lot of fun is like the kind of less serious, but other more fun influences like the Arnold Stallone kind of tribute. Arnold's awesome. Arnold's, always been one of my uh i don't the term idols false i mean i don't have any idol like idols that i have mm-hmm. that are celebrity based but arnold i have just loads of respect for in terms of he came over here as an immigrant he made a lot of money in real estate before he even hit the bodybuilding scene mm-hmm. he brought bodybuilding to a stage and platform that it never was before um he kind of made being big and muscular cool he took over the movie industry he got into politics. Um, I mean, he, the dude crushes everything he does. Like you can't not love that. Um, and I think that's where it's like, there is my respect for the guy has, it's just, he's awesome. Um, Stallone, I just like the old meathead movies. He's in like, I love Rocky. The, the montages. Like Rocky Rambo, uh, the expendables. I'm a sucker for just bad action movies. And you know, most, most, most of the taglines, like if you, if you actually watch Rocky, like, the acting in it's phenomenal. Um, I mean, he actually won awards for it. Now he's very typecasted. Like 
you can't put Stallone on the movie Castaway. Mm-hmm. But for that specific role, playing that kind of like, maybe for lack of better terms, like remedial or slow boxer, that was a he crushed it. Yeah, you can't help it. You can't, you can't help but feel a little bit for him. I love that. And music-wise, it's very much. I, I used to be more into hip hop. Now it's very much R and B, classic rock. Mm-hmm. Once in a while, I'll get into some weird like alternative stuff. But mm-hmm. Beauty of Satellite Radio is I can bounce around. Sure. I finally got back into Frank Sinatra again and Dean Martin. Um, after working at the Win, I couldn't listen to him for like five years because every single day <laughs> that's all I heard. But I absolutely love those two. So it's fun to have those playing through uh, my speakers again. So um, the, the last question here, um, what advice would you give to a pair of 20-somethings like me and Lewis? Uh, I think the one thing I probably said already, the most important thing is own your shit, dude. Like, there's nothing wrong with saying I messed up. There's nothing wrong with um, not knowing everything. Like, don't approach things with an ego. Um, you don't learn that way. Um, if you're passionate about something, you can stand up for yourself, but there, there's no reason to have an ego. Um, I, I tell my staff here, like, if the customer or the consumer has an issue, don't make an excuse, fix it. Like if you come to our restaurant, you don't give a fuck that our point of went down or that the kitchen's slow. Like that's an excuse. Mm-hmm. They're here to have a good time. Like don't make excuses, just find resolution. Um, stress yourself beyond comfort. I think mm-hmm. you guys know, I know Lewis already does. I, I just met you Kyle, but um, if you don't get outside your comfort zone, you're not going to grow. Um, every time I've challenged myself, I've gotten better in some capacity. And when I don't challenge myself, you get complacent and you don't grow. Um, another thing I, I always say, it's been preached to me since I was young, and it's true, is every failure or every um, bad circumstance, there's an opportunity in there somewhere to grow and develop. And um, Whether it's strengthening a relationship with someone or whether it's growing mentally or um, sometimes growing physically, it really just depends. One thing I think that's important nowadays that people don't, focus on because the media gets twisted is like you can be successful and you can be kind and you can also be compassionate without always taking the nice guy approach. Like every decision you make isn't going to be easy and every easy decision doesn't always feel right to everybody. Um, so I think there's a huge balance between compassion and success and you can do both together. It's just finding that balance without getting steamrolled. Um, every single agenda doesn't have to be strictly based on phil- philanthropic beliefs and everything does it like you're allowed to also see personal success and not feel bad about it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. an old one from vegas i always remember the quicker money comes the quicker it goes like fast money doesn't make money mm-hmm. be patient um and you're in my mid-20s it's like i want more 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 and you have to slow down that's why you see a lot of these club hosts they don't make it long because they're just worried about shaking hands and greasing their pockets and then by the time they're 35 and not cool they have nothing they have no background and nothing to live on so um you know, be patient with your, your money. And then, um, the, re- the reason I came back here is like, you have to find that balance between financial success, uh, self-worth, and then just genuine happiness. Like a lot of times, like it's, I'm not one of those people that say like, Oh, like you don't need money. You need money. And like everyone wants success and you want to have money in the bank. You want to retire and have nice things, but there is a balance of financial success and personal success that extend from a physical success, whether it be in the gym or happiness that you get through your wife or whatever that may be. Like you need to find different modes of happiness beyond just strictly being driven financially. That's Those great. Are like the big pillars that I try to focus on on a day-to-day basis. 
Oh, well, thank you for sharing those with us. Uh, I think that wraps up everything we had. Curtis, thank you so much for coming on with us. This was awesome. Uh, um, do, you, do you want me to give you directions and I'd have this great quarantine haircut? Cause I can do it for you if you want. Uh, you know, you cut my hair a couple of times. <laughs> you have pictures uh, of that? <laughs> it was the uh, only time your dad was ever mad at me. The only time my dad was ever mad at you was, uh, what, like a day or two before my sister's bat mitzvah? You decided to give no, me a mohawk? It was, it was a week or two. It was longer than a day or two. It was like a couple weeks. My dad plans, you know, a huge events with all sorts of customers coming. and Basically, I was like, hey, Lewis, I should give you a mohawk. And he was young and impressionable, and we were close. Like, yeah, like, we should do it. Yeah, his dad didn't think it was cool. I but, thought we it did, was but we did it. We did it before anyone uh, could tell us not to. Yeah. I was almost homeless. I was almost homeless there, but I wasn't thankful. <laughs> I was gonna ask about the uh, the, the uh, pigeon poop off the roof, and if there's anything worse than that you've ever had to do. Without a doubt, that is the worst thing I've ever done in my life, and I've had to do it twice. <laughs> that, that, and what was it? Scared, being scared of heights in the middle of summer with 110 degrees out, and shoveling just literally gallons of pigeon shit off a roof it's, just, it's emotionally stressful it's physically nerve-wracking when you're worried about being two stories in the air and dying like i was just terrified that my my last days on earth were going to be shoveling pigeon shit and then i fall to my death it was just a terrible terrible thought i thought i deserved a more noble passing that's hilarious i had to get that one in there somewhere it's pretty funny I threaten your dad so they, they, I will do there's a lot of things I'll do for you but never again that is uh, <laughs> never again That's I, I have PTSD from it I can't even look at a pigeon anymore it's terrible that wraps up our interview with Curtis Shulman I had a great time doing that interview and I hope you enjoyed listening to it if you like what you heard and you want to hear more from us, please follow the Lewis and Kyle show on social media on Instagram and Twitter we can be found at lewis kyle show or on facebook at the lewis and kyle show and by subscribing to us on apple podcasts if you really like the show please leave a rating or review on itunes to help us grow in the charts thank you so much for listening and we will see you in the next episode